in the fact that there is a grammar underlying anatomy, which is exactly like the grammar underlying sentences. You have to define the parts of an anatomical business of a creature in terms of their relationships to each other, the trunk of the elephant related to its eyes, to its mouth, etc., etc., my nose related to my eyes, my mouth, therefore my nose equals his trunk to that extent in its relations. And when you discover that, you see, suddenly you get an, a sort of life going through what is really very formal, very structural, which when you were children and being taught this, it looked very dry. Uh, but in fact, it is something in terms of which a great deal of the world starts to make sense. We are, you see, at a very peculiar moment in history. The old framework broke. Try to understand the evil on a rocky outcropping off the northeastern coast of England, the monastery of Lindisfarne once stood as an outpost of religious, philosophic, and intellectual study against the dark times of medieval Europe. Inspired by the foresight and dogged determination of these medieval monks, William Irwin Thompson founded the Lindisfarne Association in 1972 to gather together both scientists, scholars, artists, and contemplatives to realize a new planetary culture in the face of the political, cultural, and environmental crises of the 20th century. The Lindisfarne tapes represent some of the most visionary thinking of the time, drawing connections between culture, economics, society, and technology. While the germs of new ideas contained in these tapes are now beginning to take root, they remain an invaluable source of speculative thinking that will continue to inspire our visions of a more just and regenerative future. In this Lindisfarne lecture, anthropologist, cyberneticist, and author of Steps to an Ecology of Mind, Gregory Bateson, challenges the relationship between consciousness and evolution using the logic of grammar to recontextualize the development of both biological structures and culture. Uh, I'm supposed to be talking on education and learning. And education is a word I don't like, and I don't like the word learning. So let me do a little quick footwork to tell you what I regard these words as ought to meaning, what they ought to mean. Uh, first of all, I want to use the word education to refer to the entire machinery and system of processes, whatever you want to call it, whereby the norms of a culture 
and its wisdoms and follies are transmitted through time to the next generation. And the word learning, which always has somewhat of a flavor of SR psychology to it, I, I want to use for any piece of that big system which we might want to focus on at a given moment. Learning is energy, an artificial way of cutting a piece out to look at. It refers to such a piece when cut out. Now, let me say that I think it's absolutely disastrous, first of all, to carry a notion like education in a cultural system. You see, this is the notion that there is something separate called education which is going to be handled by schools, universities, and such places, and which, you see, is cut off from its roots by its very definition and by giving it a name. And one of the things we are going to be noting again and again, which is familiar enough, Lord knows, is that what you say is the case and what you believe tends to become the case. So that if you really persuade people that there is something called education, which is distinct from living and passing on living, you will then have in your system something which is distinct from living and passing on living, and this will be called education. And it will be dreadfully dull and rather dead, because that is the way you set up the vocabulary and the way in which you accepted certain sorts of belief. Now, in spite of the fact I was in a regents meeting of the University of California as late as yesterday noon, uh, I still think the word education is a deplorable word. All right, now we have this massive interlocking business of transmitting wisdom and folly, love and hate, ingenuity, technique, ways of treating each other, ideas, ways of thinking, and so on. And it would seem, at a first glance, almost silly to try to talk about that. And what I want to suggest to you is, first of all, that it's not quite so silly as it looks, because the people in this river of information and wisdom and whatnot uh, are essentially, if you want to be polite to them, you can say they're organizers or integrators, or if you want to be rude to them, you can say they are essentially lazy. 
whichever term you want, they do in fact shape things so as to uh, bring them into a degree of simplicity or order, of generality, that it becomes possible to talk. You know, they impose dyadic dichotomies, divisions on the stuff. And they think of life as being made of good and evil. I don't know what's made of that, you know, but if you once say it's made of good and evil, and you train your young to believe this, you can make it sort of true to the extent that people halfway believe it. And this simplifies life. Uh, they will be willing to think there are friends and enemies, love and hate. Uh, they'll be willing to, you know, construct such great networks of knowledge as, as mathematics, for example which is an incredibly simple network when you actually begin to poke it around. But it is an enormous simplifying concept running through the civilization. And it's possible to talk about a civilization because, in fact, people simplify it. Now, there are limits to simplification, and we in the West uh, are a little, I think, over-addicted to the idea of simplifying life. Uh, we have all these machines, pretty, shiny, intricate little things that will think almost for us, and so on. Let me use the machines as a springboard to indicate what I'm not talking about. There's an old story of the anthropologist Rayo Fortune, who was working among the Omaha Indians in the Midwest, and he finally got the principal shaman or sorcerer of the community to come and talk to him. And the anthropologist and the sorcerer sat looking at each other, each wondering somewhat what the other had to say. And finally, the sorcerer reached forward, tapped the typewriter that was on the table, and said, we are not talking about that. There's a story, you know, of the man who asked the computer, programmed it to answer the question, do you compute that you will ever think like a human being? And the computer finally wrote the answer on a piece of paper, the man got it and read it, and it said, quote, that reminds me of a story, unquote. <laughs> I always get a lot of uh, mileage out of that story. Um, you see, the point is that computers don't think that way, and human beings do. They think in terms of stories. And, for example, the uh, 
you know, enormous amount of money was being spent, perhaps still is being spent, on trying to make computer programs or machines which would translate, say, Russian into English or whatever. And all those programs break down on this essential point, which I'm hitting on, you see, with three different parables coming in from different angles. Uh, the first the parable, we're not talking about the typewriter. The second, uh, computers don't think in stories, and we are going to think in stories. And we are thinking about people thinking in stories. And then there is the fact that the computer cannot translate into Russian or into any other language the words, quote, Mary had a little lamb, unquote. Because the computer doesn't know the story. You see, what, what was the, did she have it for breakfast? Or I, I will leave to your imagination <laughs> the number of possible ways in which she might have had the lamb. And this is the sort of thing, you see, that the mechanical world cannot deal with, and the human world can. And the human world is capable of laughter and tears and a number of things that the mechanical world doesn't produce. All right. So, we are talking about education as a transmission of that about human beings that, at least at present, cannot be duplicated, and I perhaps rather hope never can be duplicated, in hardware. And we are therefore in a world which has various names, and these names are not taught in schools. Uh, one of the names is the word epistemology. What is the relationship? How can we, quote, know anything? What is it to know something? Another word for the same thing is the mind-body problem. What is the relation between mind and the body, if there be such a relation? I mean, is there such a legitimate split anyway? And then there's the area that I'm very much interested in, which is the area of biological evolution, which you see is a body of ideas about how trial and error, perhaps random change over millions of years, creates the beautiful things called animals and plants with their adjustments, their savagery, their love, their hate, and all that. The adaptation, even. And all those, those subjects, what you think about 
how the world evolves. Uh, what do you think about the nature of thought? And your philosophy of the nature of knowing. These are really all one subject, though they would in fact be taught perhaps in different departments of a university. Evolution, of course, you teach in the bio labs, and epistemology you teach in the philosophy labs, and where you teach body-mind, I don't know. I suspect in church. Uh, one of the most curious ways of splitting the world, you know, was to say there's such a thing as religion. It's as curious as the notion of the word education. And how this country, I, I, I look at it, you know, partly from across the Atlantic, how this country manages to have a constitution which forbids the teaching of religion in schools, I don't know. Uh, it's a feat of double-mindedness that I wouldn't attempt myself. <laughs> anyway, there it is. So, we've got this enormous expanse of process, an interlocking process, partly called life, partly called learning, called transmission of whatever. And how are we going to somehow slice that up in ways that we can think about a little more, more clearly. Uh, take the case of a, of a wasp, the solitary wasps that eat spiders. Well, they don't eat spiders, they collect spiders put them in holes of the ground, lay their eggs on them, and the babies of the next generation eat the spider. It's really a quite miraculous piece of skill. The spider has to be stung precisely in its central nervous system, which goes down its belly side. And if you sting, the, it gets a wasp sting in its main nerve cord, this will paralyze it, and it will stay fresh, and the wasp grubs will be able to eat it for a week or two, as long as they need. It becomes a store of fresh animal food. A most elegant adaptation. And all the wasps as a given species know how to do this and uh, usually do it, I think, to the same species as spider. You get an accurate fit there between the two things. But it obviously is not possible for the mother wasp to know in detail how to sting this particular spider. This one is this way up, you know, and that one is that way up. Uh, this one is falling down on a thread. Uh, that one is running so-and-so. 
And while it is conceivable, but mysterious, granted, that the mother wasp may hatch from her pupa, her chrysalis, knowing in some sense that it is this species of spider smelling so-and-so, moving so-and-so that she is to catch, uh, she cannot know the detail of the combat. That, you see, she has to deal with in the unique single situation of that combat. And the next spider will be different. There's always a limit to what you can ascribe to, quote, instinct. And that limit is always a... a, a, a a matter of a ladder of some sort, that that which can be ascribed, can be handed over to instinctive control, is always more general, more abstract, and what you have to keep open, unfixed by genetics, is the problem of precise detail. That you can never hand over. And the same, you know, goes for ethics, goes for all the skills and philosophies that we hope the next generation will learn, or perhaps will escape learning, you know, because I think there's an awful lot of nonsense we try to pass on from us. So that we have, at the simplest level, and this applies to us just as much as it applies to spiders, uh, the detail of moment-to-moment -moment behavior, in which if I hold this piece of wire here, I'm holding a piece of wire of somewhat less than a quarter inch diameter, and it would be rather different to hold a piece of wire of bigger diameter. Uh, you know, every move, my arm is resting on this arm of this chair at this height, uh, and it fits this chair at this moment. If the chair were half an inch lower, half an inch higher, I would fit it differently. And I wouldn't have, you know, a deep philosophy about that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, here I am talking to you in this room, and the fitting problem is then, you see, a much more complicated one. Uh, for one thing, I don't want to leave you totally unaffected by what I say. I don't particularly need to change the chair. I adjust the chair, flow into it, and that's all right. But I think it would be nice if you either agreed with me or disagreed with me in what I say. I don't much mind as between those two. But the, what I say might have some sort of meaning to you, 
that it be known. But to do that, that's much more difficult. Uh, so that, how can I say it? I have here, in a sense, a living problem. You as living, I as living, and a, a dance of some kind, though I sit and you sit, we're still maneuvering along. And this is part, you know, of the business of cultural transmission, of education for you and for me. You see, the moment you separate it, uh, on the whole, American children have got the idea that education is separate and undesirable by the time they reach fourth grade. The brighter ones learn it by about second grade. And this goes, you know, pretty well as much for progressive schools as it does for the regular state schools. Public schools. Now, it's a very, very serious thing. Now, what do I mean? I mean that in the first to fourth grade, there is a death of communication such as I hope will not happen in the next three quarters of an hour in this room. It may happen. Or be, you know, it's not easy either for you or for me. To consider what are the characteristics, and there are many, many sorts, of a transmitting situation such that it shall not go dead in the mouth. Shall not be like that stuff between first and fourth grade. Uh, I personally believe that the problem is right on this question of how the mind belongs in the body. Let me uh, go off sideways somewhat. My mind and your mind got you here, gets me here on two legs, five toes on each foot, uh, hands, eyes, more or less miraculously designed so that a lens which grows in from the skin meets 
a bulb which grows out from the brain. The bulb hollows to make a retina, like a football that you squish. And these two things, the lens and the retina, combine to make this thing called an eye. And you've got, you see, necessarily a massive interchange of messages in order to achieve that bit of anatomical dance between two body parts. Now, to me, that is a matter of ideas, a matter of cultural transmission. If I didn't dislike the word education, I would be perfectly willing, or, or maybe I would be happy with the word education, if you let me use it to say that the uh, invagination, I think actually the, the brain bulb, bulb comes out from the brain, is the dominant feature and causes the skin to make a lens to meet it. I think that's the way the communication goes. Uh, to regard that, you see, as a piece of transmission of wisdom or information within a body, comparable to the transmission that we're attempting in this room or that any school or any family is attempting all the time. Uh, well, I'm trying to evoke, invoke, evoke in you an image of a species of learning uh, such that whatever you experience, whatever you experience, shall be, so to speak, a part of your own biology. Now, this is much clearer in, uh, say, aesthetic things. Now, here we are in a church with certain artistic forms, certain proportions, and so forth. Or you might be uh, looking at a picture or listening to Bach or whatever. And I think the first step in getting mind and body together, and that's in the end what I'm talking about, is the discovery that if a, a form or a sequence of music, whatever it is, affects you, and you say, quote, it is beautiful, uh, you are, in a sense, talking nonsense. Uh, the beauty does not reside in it. The beauty does not reside in something separate from it called you. Uh, the beauty resides precisely in the it-you hyphenated system. 
Now, this, you see, is, is, is the sort of thing that is granted excessively difficult to teach in a classroom, is not easy to teach even by a fireside reading aloud to children or playing with them or whatever, and perhaps cannot be taught. I mean, to say it doesn't, doesn't communicate it. It only tells you there's a place there that you might one day find something. And that's all I can do. It's all any words can ever do. Uh, I can offer you tears that it should even be necessary to try and say it, you know. So that what I'm building towards is the notion that the pathology of education is a pathology of how we think about body-mind relations and that that pathology distortion is enormously increased, obviously, by the various sorts of slicing that are imposed upon education. The notion that there is a subject called physiology, which you will go and learn in a physiology lab, something called botany, which you will go and learn in a botany lab, something called grammar, which you will learn in linguistics, and something called language, which you will learn separately from learning grammar, and so on and so on. Now, all those slicings are, in the end, ways of not only separating the subject physiology from the subject grammar, but separating your physiology as you conceive it from your grammar as you conceive it, and so on. Is that a signal? No. Now, I am conceivably interruptible, but give me a few more minutes. <laughs> Uh, you see, I think the revolt of the 60s, of the, 60s the sit-ins and all that, freedom of speech movements, were disastrous. And they were disastrous in this sense that the students were correct and precisely, meticulously correct in the feeling that they were being ripped off in what they were being told, taught, made to learn, whatever. There was something very, very wrong with the whole business. That's true. Now, they didn't know what was wrong. As indeed, how could they know what was wrong? Because they'd been taught you know, wrongly to think about finding out what was wrong. Uh, the professors didn't really know what was wrong either because they'd been listening to their own teaching for some years. Uh, and this is very bad for people. Uh, so nobody knew. And they fought 
on the assumption that power was the thing they wanted, perhaps more than anything else. There were two possibilities. One was power, and the other was the negation of power, which was to go out and live under the bushes. Now, you see, power is a way of talking about human beings which is appropriate to talking about typewriters and computing machines and engines of various kinds and is not very appropriate to talking about those creatures which combine body-mind in a single package. The myth of power is perhaps one of the most disastrous things we teach. And again, the myth of power, you know, takes on a certain truth, if you believe it. The old statement, power corrupts, should have been the myth of power corrupts, if you believe it. And all that was a part of the nonsense that the children had been taught and against which they were rebelling but could only in the nature of the case rebel in terms of what they had been taught. And therefore they never get out of the, the circle, you see. They have been taught that power is a bad thing and power corrupts and other people have power, therefore you've got to have power to deal with the other people because power corrupts, and you go round and round. Now, nobody told them, oh, very simple sort of things, which I think might have been told, as, for example, that the... what they were told about... Um, grammar at school, that a noun is the name of a person, place, or thing, a verb is the name of an action, and so on. Uh, the that was on the whole false, and that in fact a noun is a word which stands for the subject of a sentence, a verb is that which has a noun as its subject, and things like that, a set of definitions in terms of relations. Now, notice that we're moving into a different world as you step from the thing in its name to the relation in its name. And if that were taught, uh, then you see while they were learning their botany or the anatomy, now, if you say, what is an elephant's trunk? An elephant's trunk is its nose. What do you mean an elephant's trunk is its nose? An elephant's trunk is that which stands between two eyes. What do you mean two eyes? Two eyes are that which stand on each side of an elephant's trunk. And what you have is a body of relations which have to do with the actual life and growth and determinism within the baby elephant, the embryo. Now, these things, you see, 
we keep talking of as fingers as if they were outsiders to, to grip, to pick, etc., etc. But if you were to think of these things, so to speak, from the inside outwards, you'd get quite a different picture. Um, the, the, the best example of this, which I've used, some of you will have heard, is the example of the nature of a leaf on a plant, in which the average citizen <coughs> believes that a leaf is a flat green thing on the side of a stick, more or less, uh, which is true for many leaves. But if you want to know, say, about um, what the prickles of a cactus, what are the spines of a cactus? Well, you will go and you look at those spines and you will find that uh, is the outline. You have a a sort of a lump there with a bunch of spines coming out and a big one coming out from it like that, probably. There are many different ways in which this is arranged. And what you've got is the arrangement of leaves, leaves on a plant. And leaves carry buds in the angles there. And those are the real definitions of relationship. That a leaf is that which has a baby stem in its angle. A stem is that which came from the angle of a leaf. You know, this one was, was once upon a time a branch from a big one. And, and there's a scar of its old leaf there that it was in the angle of. So on. And you've got a relational definition of what is a leaf. A leaf is that which is related in a certain way to a stem. A stem is that which is related to this way to a leaf. And a potato, for example, which we passed around in Lindisfarne the other day. That's where one stem comes in. And this is a thinner one going on. There'll be another potato out there, maybe. And you will see that this thing has a certain number of little scales. And under there, there's a pit. At the bottom of the pit is a bud, which is called the, these are called the eyes of a potato. And this will, in due course, grow up to have leaves and be a potato, be a, or a plant. So this is a piece of stem. Right, now what I'm saying, I'm not trying to give you a lesson in botany. I'm trying to give you a lesson in communication, in the fact that there is a grammar underlying anatomy, which is exactly like the grammar underlying sentences. You have to define the parts of an anatomical business, of a creature, in terms of their relationships to each other, the trunk of the elephant related to its eyes, to its mouth, etc., etc. My nose related to my eyes, my mouth, 
Therefore, my nose equals his trunk to that extent in its relation. And when you discover that, you see, suddenly you get an, a sort of life going through what is really very formal, very structural, which when you were children and being taught this, it looked very dry. Uh, but in fact, it is something in terms of which a great deal of the world starts to make sense. And it starts to make sense, you see, because the living world, the world of the biosphere, the biological world, is always based upon communication. Communication must have grammar, and therefore, anatomy and the anatomy of, of the anatomy of living things and the anatomy of speech boil down to being analogous phenomena, all part of one way of understanding the world. Now, if you're going to break your educational process up into little bits. You put physiology over there, anatomy over there, grammar somewhere else, art criticism somewhere else. Uh, then you have no way, really, of looking at any of the pieces. You see, the sensible way to look at a painting is as a piece of production of a living creature, an artist. And you, usually the responses of a living creature to a living world around him, the mountains, the trees, the portrait, whatever it is. And you're all in the, in the middle, you know, of a, of a massive heaving of, of protoplasm and its messages all the time. And it's this omnipresence everywhere of messaging, of communicating, that gives you an idea of what mind is and gives you an idea of what you can transmit in a culture. Uh, if you're... Uh, See, in a way, it was disastrous. In the middle of the 18th century, about 1750s, William Paley, an English theologian, was teaching in Cambridge, and finally, about, 18, about 1780, I think, wrote Paley's evidences for the creation. Paley's Evidences was in its day a very, very famous book. It was required reading for those who did not take Greek at Cambridge, even as late as 1900. It was a defense of Genesis chapter 1 against theories of evolution. It was 100 years before Darwin. I, I imagine it was aimed at... Uh, the French encyclopedists, Rousseau and company, so on, Diderot, 
Anyhow, the argument was, look at your watch. You will see that your watch is specially designed to tell the time. Paley didn't stop to ask difficult philosophical questions about time. But your watch is obviously designed to tell time. It is designed to tell time because it was designed by a designer who designed it to tell time. If now you look at any living thing, the claw of a crab, say, you will see that it's designed, I don't know what for, to pinch its wife. I don't know what crabs, I think they do use their claws for food. Lobsters on the whole don't. Um, lobsters on the whole use their big claws to fight each other with. But anyway, the design. And again, Paley didn't trust much about what they did with their claws. Uh, now, what he did, you see, was partly to compel later evolutionists to respond to the threat, the challenge of design, and therefore to make an evolutionary theory which would be a materialistic explanation of design. You know, the position taken by the theologians forced the evolutionists into nonsense. And then later, the position taken by the evolutionists forces the theologians into nonsense. And that's how it goes. Uh, but what I'm saying is that Paley uh, did a dissecting act that by putting purpose outside the organism and, and saying that the claw is to do so-and-so, and the whole book, it's, it's a very learned and ingenious book. It's beautifully done. Uh, but you see, it forbids you ever really to ask about those five fingers from the inside and instead of setting up the really much more miraculous problem of growth relations and all that, in which now the purpose is, is one little angle of something which has an inner context and an outer context, what do they call it, a microcosm and a macrocosm, interrelated in ways which are really much more impressive than Paley was trying to even dreamt of himself. In a sense, he was a very bad theologian. He didn't give God anything like the credit that God was entitled to if God did it. All right, now the question is, I suppose, a little more realistic. What can you do? You can talk to people in 49 West 20th. You know, this is already nice. Uh, you can sit in at a university regents meeting and wonder what in hell you can do about it. 
we are, you see, at a very peculiar moment in history. The fact that the Lindisfarne Association exists at all, what it exists upon, but what its basic raison d'etre is, is the very deep shift in thinking which has got to happen in the next 50 years and ought to have happened 50 years ago. Uh, this that I've been talking to you about, where mind is permeating everything and where you see, even though the culture which you transmit is full of nonsense about crab's claws, about purpose, about separate, separating the world into separate its, that even though the the content of what is being passed on culturally is full of nonsense. Of course, the mechanism of passing it on is still the old biological, mental, communicational processes, you see. Distort them how you will. That is still going on in the same sort of way. You can't not except by landing in lunatic asylums, you know, which is always possible. So that as you begin to see the, the cultural transmission process, uh, as you begin to see that the growth of a leg on a body is a communicational necessity, uh, so, it becomes, you see, a nonsense for a child to say it doesn't want to learn. If the child is saying it doesn't want to learn, that means there's a, a monstrosity of some sort going on. And the monstrosity tends to be a divisive monstrosity. From the Cartesian division of mind and matter on to the division of all the subjects, so-called, of education. It's, it's very strange that schools have subjects of education. And families really don't, in the same sort of way. Obviously, what a family is transmitting is much more complex than what schools attempt to transmit, and is much more vital and important. And in the end, the problem of transmission in the school 
Uh, first of all, is not to separate the school thing from the family thing, and then not to separate the subject out in a way that oh ends up, you know, in the, in the ultimate caricature of the whole thing, which is the uh, what do they call it? Yes or no answer examination. Examination which is entirely made of quiz bits, in which the child is rewarded for having broken up life into nonsensical units. I think I've, I've sort of opened the subject enough so that perhaps I should now be questioned. Thank you for listening to the Lindisfarne Tapes. This podcast is brought to you by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. For over 40 years, the mission of the Schumacher Center has been to envision the elements of a just and regenerative global economy, apply these elements in our home region in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, and then develop the educational programs to share our results more broadly. To learn more about our work, visit our website at www.centerforneweconomics.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. For more podcast content, check out our Schumacher Lectures podcast. To help strengthen our mission, you can make a donation at www.centerforneweconomics.org slash donate.